please consider uh, joining us for this event. The cost is $180 per person, but if that is a problem, uh, that's a bit much, we can definitely work something out. We do not want anyone to miss out on this for financial reasons. And uh, for that purpose as well, if anyone would like to uh, help sponsor someone to go, please contact me. Uh, I do need final numbers for this event by next week. Okay, so if you're thinking about it, I don't know, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. You need to um, come up with that decision for me next week because I know we're talking February, but if we end up uh, having too, uh, too small of a number, it can fill up. Other churches go to this thing as well. So we need to know what number to, to reserve at the camp. So it's very, very important that you get back to me as soon as possible if you're uh, considering going, okay? So with that said, we are continuing our series in the Psalms, and this morning we are in Psalm chapter 14. And this psalm is what is known as a wisdom psalm. This means it offers wisdom, right, or insight and instructions on how we should and shouldn't act. And these are instructions for right living. Uh, so the Christian who is passionate about God, when they hear instructions for right living, they, they should perk up. They should immediately, your ears should, should, should be um, listening to what is about to be said, uh, because this is very important. Now, the way in which the psalmist goes about this is very interesting. He doesn't just say, do this, don't do that. The psalmist takes a rather unique approach in order to get across his idea. He largely describes, for, for most part in this psalm, the nature of the fool. And that is the name and the title of this sermon, if you like, titles, The Fool. So everyone can turn to Psalm 14, that is where we'll be. And when I say the word fool, uh, what comes to mind? Now that's a dangerous question to ask, because for some of us, people's faces might come to mind. That's not what I was trying to do. You should not be thinking of a particular person, especially not anyone in this room, okay? That is not what I meant. I meant characteristics of a fool. Maybe you think of the king's fool, right? The jester who would come in and be silly and juggle and tell a few jokes to make everyone laugh. You might think of the simpleton, maybe someone who's uneducated. Maybe that, that would be considered a fool, you might think of someone who's risky, right? Someone who's, I'm going to go bungee jumping, right? You might say, oh, that's a foolish thing to do. And none of these things are necessarily uh, wrong descriptions of what may or may not be a fool. It might be an appropriate recognition that you have of a fool. However, actions are not foolish because you and I decide they are. Actions are foolish because God decides they are. You see, even more important than what I think or what you think a fool is, is what God thinks a fool is. If you and I say something is foolish, it might just be an opinion, it might be right, it might be wrong. We humans tend to have a lot of opinions, and we're awful quick to throw around the word fool for anyone who disagrees with us about anything, aren't we? But when God defines something, you see, it's more than an opinion. When God defines a certain type of person as a fool, they are objectively a fool indeed. 
God's description is all that matters. And in our psalm this morning, God himself, he does just that. He defines the fool and shares the definition with us today that we may acknowledge the traits and the destiny of a fool. So let's read Psalm 14 together to learn more. If we could all stand for the reading of God's word. So as usual, what is in red at the end, we will read together. Here is the word of God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed detestable acts. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from, the, from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of injustice not know, who devour my people as they eat bread and do not call upon, my, uh, do not call upon the Lord? There, there they are in great dread, for God is with a righteous generation. You would put to shame the plan of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Let's read this last verse together. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Please remain standing as we go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now. We acknowledge that all things come from you, Lord, that you are the creator, the establisher of all things, the source of all wisdom. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit in order to understand these deep truths. So Lord, right now we pray that, that your Holy Spirit, that you yourself would open our eyes to the truth in Psalm 14 and that we would be convicted and transformed by the power of your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So here... Psalm 14, again, eternal insight as to what makes a fool a fool. We read about the fool and his effects and the righteous in their salvation. Their salvation from the fool, in fact. And what we're going to find is we're going to find uh, four main facts that come from this text. regarding The first three are regarding the fool themselves. And the last one is regarding... God's people and the righteous and the restoration of God's people from the fool. So we see that the fool is uninterested in God and his law. We also see that the fool persecutes God's people. We see that the fool will one day be in dread. And lastly, we see God's people will one day be restored. Now, some of these points are explicitly dealing with the fool. However, the implication of, say, a fool being uninterested in God and his law is that the non-fool, the righteous, is interested in God and his law. Therefore, as we go about doing this and talking about the fool, do not do so with a lens of uh, other people, okay? Oh, this is for the fool, for someone else. There is great value 
and practical application for us to examine the fool as well, and to do so with a critical lens, not on others necessarily, but more so a critical lens on ourselves. Am I acting as a fool? And I encourage us all to examine ourselves in this way as we proceed. So with with that caveat in mind, let us begin. Let's look at this first point here, that the fool is uninterested in God and his law. The psalm starts out, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Right from the beginning, we see God define the fool's primary quality. I don't know if I should call it a quality. That almost sounds too nice. Primary characteristic of the fool. The fool is one who has said to himself in his heart, there is no God. Now this charge from a secular perspective perspective is simply outlandish. There are many, many people of great intelligence in academia and other places who make this assertion, this atheistic assertion that there is no God, and perhaps even genuinely believe this assertion in their heart. However, the Bible calls such a person a fool. Now, there is a sense in which this individual is incredibly smart, and that they are in this life Uh, great intellectuals on a great number of things. However, it must be recognized that said individual has come to the wrong conclusion about the main thing. And that such a devastating wrong conclusion is enough to nullify all of the temporal knowledge that one holds and thus be deemed a fool. It's maybe as Pascal would put it. Pascal was a mathematician and an apologist uh, back in the day, and he put it uh, in the form of a wager. He says, if you believe in God and you serve him and devote yourself to him, you have infinite gain. But if you reject God and uh, you believe he's not real, and it turns out you were wrong, you have lost an infinite amount. And so you see, based on this type of reasoning, we can conclude that anyone who says there is no God, even if they are quote-unquote smart, can be considered, in the end, a fool, as Scripture affirms. It's like knowing a lot of facts about something, in this case the world, but missing the purpose of all of those facts. It's possible to be a great thinker and to accomplish nothing great at all. Nothing of eternal value. And this leads to another point here. Look at this description. They say there is no God, but look at from the place from where they're saying it. This is important, important to note. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So the psalmist identifies that this is not merely one who says there is no God, but that this is uh, something deeper. It's, not, it's more than just saying this with your mouth that makes you a fool, or even maybe affirming with your mouth that indeed there is a God, but it is saying so uh, in your heart that makes you the fool. Think about the culture from which this is written. This is an ancient culture. These individuals uh, probably did not reject the existence of God altogether in a way maybe the modern person uh, in the university might, right? It's not Uh, entirely like that, a one-to-one relation between how we view atheism. It may have been that these people, with their mouths out loud, even said there is a God. 
But in their hearts, you see, in their inner man, they didn't really believe this. They instead believed there is no God. There's no standard he's given. There's no judgment that is going to be incoming. And this is a functional atheism. And this too has consequences on our actions. So while we can apply all of this certainly to the hard atheist who boldly with their mouth declares there is no God, this can also be applied to the functional atheist as well. One who might even say with their mouth there's a God, but in their heart rejects that claim. That person too is a fool. And this idea of uh, saying this in your heart has to do with uh, how we live our lives. If you believe something truly in your heart, it's going to affect your actions, right? So this is not entirely apart from how we act, the rejection or acceptance of the conclusion that God exists, right? And, and this is exactly what the psalmist has in mind. The text, after calling said person, which we just described, a fool, shifts to effects and actions that result from the false belief that they hold. Look at this. The next lines, it says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Then what comes next? They are corrupt. They have committed detestable acts. The idea of, of, of that, your, uh, that your beliefs affect your actions is what is coming out here. And here we have this idea of corrupt Again, in the Hebrew, this has to do with going to ruin. Said person, they're polluted, they're spoiled. Uh, there's no positive effect in eternity. They failed their ultimate purpose, and so they're to be destroyed for, for the wrongs that they've done. Moreover, not only do you have people who have failed to do anything positive, but they have also done negative. They have done and committed detestable acts. Now, this word uh, detestable means that it is something that God dislikes and he hates. And so he rejects it and he rejects any who declare it as good. It's not a good thing. It is rejected by God. You see, they rejected God, but really this meant nothing but that God in turn rejected them in their acts. Despite their delusion, he maintains authority over judging the morality of mankind. And we'll see this later on as it comes out in, in the text. But you see, God is the moral lawgiver. And so if you reject him and you reject his moral laws, his descriptions of good and evil, and you just go about doing what you think is best, it is going to have terrible effects. This is why we look around and see the moral filth that we do. Anytime God is rejected, a person becomes morally deficient by necessity. We should expect nothing less than moral failure when you take God's word, God's descriptions, and, and ignore them and toss them aside. And we see this playing out, friends, in our schools. We see this playing out in our universities, in our workplaces, as we separate God from all of these things. We see an increase in moral failure. That is because they have rejected God altogether. And apart from God, there is no good within, within such a person. We should expect nothing less when God is removed from the picture. When God is removed, man left to himself, 
there's no good within him. When God is rejected, it always affects a person in such a way. There will always be moral deficiency without the concept of the biblical God dictating lives. It's simply inevitable. Here's the point. The rejection of God in their hearts affected their actions. They have a mindset of eat, drink, and be merry. And it came from a false belief that there is no God. And therefore, this life, it's a a free-for-all, you see. There's no objective morals without God, is is what, what they say. And they say there's no God, so we can do whatever we think is best. This belief, however, is false. They are still declared detestable in the scripture. And therefore, they are rejected by God. They're rejected by the God who they themselves reject. This is what makes them fools. In the words of Romans 1, they suppress the truth evident to them that God is real. They live in accordance with their own desires, what they want, and thus claiming to be wise, they become fools. Anytime God is rejected, this is the case. Man fails morally. The belief indeed has consequences. The fool doesn't have in mind God, his judgments, what has clearly been declared detestable. They are left to their own ways of thinking about things, and they fail. And we know this just by looking around. I need not argue this point uh, so dramatically. If you just look around, anytime you see God is removed from a situation, there's increased moral failure and evil. Friends, are you a functional atheist? Are you living out your life in such a way where you aren't really portraying the belief that God exists? Do you have in mind the judgments and declarations of God from his word and how how we act? Are you living life in your heart and truly believing God exists, or are you living your life in a way where it might exhibit that you don't believe he exists at all? If you are living as if the moral law in Scripture is a suggestion The question is, do you really believe that the biblical God exists? In any substantial sense of of that, at least. If you do, that belief will affect your lifestyle. It certainly did for the fools in Psalm 14 in a negative way. And for the saint, if we believe that truth, that God does exist, it can affect us in a positive way. We'll move on. We see the next point here is that the fool does not seek God. Look at verse 2. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together, they are corrupt. So we saw the fool and their awful actions rooted in their false belief. And now the psalmist introduces this new aspect that God is looking upon mankind. Oh, just again, because you reject God does not mean he can't see you and he is not there. And he's looking for something. And what is he looking for? He is looking for people looking for him. He is looking to see, is anyone seeking me? If any is truly wise, if any are wise, they will seek the Lord. That is what is implied here. He finds instead that they have turned aside. 
right? Turning aside from something. It's almost like putting your fingers in your ears and saying, oh, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, and you're turning around. You're trying purposely to ignore something. You have turned aside. You are doing the opposite of seeking the Lord. You are intentionally, intentionally ignoring him. God is there, and he is looking to see who is seeking him. Again, I'm reminded of Romans 1, God's existence, it is self-evident. He has made it known to us. And we have to suppress the truth, it says in Romans chapter 1. They are intentionally not looking for God, turning aside, turning from him as he is looking and watching to see, is anyone seeking me? Now remember how this psalm started. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. Now, this is interesting. They have made a claim of a negation of something, of the existence of something. They claim negation. And if they're being intellectually honest, this necessarily requires seeking and searching. What do I mean by this? If I made the claim, there is no red pen in this chapel, what am I required to do if I make such a claim? Not turn aside and go about my business. I am required to seek out, to look down each of the rows, to check people's notebooks and Bibles and see if there is a red pen that is in this chapel. If we are being honest, we cannot negate God's existence without a proper search of God. The fool does not do this. The fool does not seek God, yet they claim he does not exist. Here's what we see from a positive perspective on this seeking of God. From Hebrews 11, chapter 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For if one who comes to God, for one who comes to God must believe that he exists. Right? Again, we know he's given ample evidence for this in Romans 1 as well. And, and, and that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. You see, you have to first in, at least imagine and engage on the possibility of that, that existence. And then seek out. That is the point. It requires faith that God actually exists. And that you seek him out. Again, the fool does not do this. They turn aside. They ignore God. We see in verse 4, it says this, again, further describing the fool. It says, all the workers of injustice do not call upon the Lord. They're not calling upon him to see if he's answering. They just, they don't care. They are set in their conclusions. Friend, the fool is one who tries to live as though God isn't real when they themselves have not attempted to wholeheartedly and vigorously seek him out in any way. They have never called upon him to see if he would answer. They are uninterested in God altogether. They have come to the conclusions they have wanted to come to without appropriately searching for that answer so that they can do whatever they want. But this is not a genuine quest for knowledge. This is not really seeking out an answer. This is an excuse to live as you want by ignoring evidence instead of acknowledging it. Think about how important it is if we are making a claim that there's a God, that there's a being, a maximally great being, who's going to judge the sins of the earth, and then you say, I'm not going to seek that out. There's no God. 
there is a search and a pursuit that is required if you are to be considered someone who is wise. That must take place. And if you're here and you're not sure about God, and I encourage you, would you begin a genuine quest yourself? Would you start trying to seek him out? Would this mark the beginning of a pursuit of God that results in a new life? One no longer dictated by a false belief that God doesn't exist, but one that pursues the real God who does exist. Would you not turn aside but seek him? And if you're even feeling that tug, I'm letting you know right now that that is the Holy Spirit at work. Because we do know that none seek him on their own. Right? That is something Paul brings out and we'll talk about later. But that means that God is interacting with you. Would you be keen? And would you recognize that this morning? The fool does not seek God. The fool doesn't care about God, understand his law. They have no care about those things, but the wise man certainly does. Next, we see this description of the fool, that the fool persecutes God's people. Oh, and how there's application here for the saint as well this morning. Here's what it says, verse 4. It says, all of the workers of injustice who devour my people as they eat bread. Remember the last time I preached, I talked about figurative language and how it's used to get across the severity of something severity of a situation, these workers of of injustice, these fools who reject God's existence will persecute God's people in a very severe way. And this is to be expected. This is a specific example here of the fool's awful morality as described in verse 1 that directly affects God's people. You see, the frustrating thing about fools for the Christian, is that fools do indeed have a temporal victory in this life, or at least seemingly. They will at times, despite their moral destitution, have a physical victory over us at times. And if these people reject God and say there is no God, and live their lives of sin, when a force of a saint comes in and starts actually interacting with that person in any real way, there's a tension that they feel, and this tension will have consequences. The fool, who, remember, is not a seeker of God, who is trying to ignore God with every possible fiber of their being, is going to hate you because God lives in you. You will be persecuted. Think of, again, the Roman Emperor Nero making a joke of God's people. Oh, how he hated them and how he attempted to make them look like the fools of this life. Any Christian should expect persecution. This is brought out further in Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not just some, all. If you're not experiencing some form of persecution, you have to begin asking the question, am I living in a godly way? Why does the world get along with me so much? They shouldn't. That doesn't mean we're intentionally jerks, but they shouldn't because of the conviction that God is trying to bring on them And because God is with us and they themselves don't like God. 
right? They, you want people to not like you because they don't like God, not like you because they don't like you, you see? There's a difference there. Again, thinking about, um, about Nero, the public opinion at the time, right, at face value, was that they probably thought, oh, these Christians are being devoured. Wow, what fools, they're throwing away their lives here. And they must have appeared, the Christians, to appear to be quite wrong and quite, quite the fool in their time. But we know, friends, that indeed this was not the case. You will at times be losing in a physical sense, and that is okay. You may at times be taken advantage of by the fool and have the fool themselves prosper at your expense. This is exactly what happened to Israel. We read on further description in verse 6. You, talking to the fool, would put to shame the plan of the poor. Look at this. Who is the poor in this text? Who is the one being oppressed in this text? Who is shamed, implying embarrassment and alleged failure? It's not the fool. That's, that's what's shocking here. That's the shocking point. The fool at this stage is not the one who is put to shame. They are the ones putting the poor to shame. The person persecuted, the person who is the fool, the person whose plans just never work out and are shamed to failure is actually God's people. We know this from verse 7, right? That is when the psalmist cries out to help from God and is longing for the day that God will provide salvation to Israel. That they would be restored, their fortunes would be restored, and honor would be granted to them once again. But in 6, in verse 6, we see God's people and their plans, the plans of the poor, they're put to shame by the fool. And the implication for us as Christians is that we must not measure our wisdom through the lens of this life and, it, and its effects here in time, but the eternal effects. Christian in this life, it may appear that you are the fool, that you are being devoured, that you are missing out on eating, drinking, and being married, uh, merry in all of the sin that is offered. But the Bible dictates otherwise. The one who lives his life acknowledging God is no fool. They may seem at times to be a fool. They may experience persecution. They may be taken advantage of, but they are all more the wise, they are infinitely more wise than the fool. We have etern eternity in our mind. They have here and now. So when the atheists or functional atheists of this world, when the Richard Dawkins of life seek to embarrass you and devour you in a sense, you must not let their temporary status of their seeming victory sway your convictions. When the sinner enjoys sin and even experiences prosperity, think of cheating on your taxes, for example, and getting away with it. And then you sit there and you say, I didn't do it. I could have. Oh, and here, this person, they're, they're making all of this money, being so successful. Ugh. Don't be fooled. They are fools in ignoring God's law and living as they please. Even if in this life it doesn't make itself evident, it will one day. It will one day. Do not be shaken when you look at the, the physical victories of these people. 
when you're suffering a loss at the expense of someone who rejects God. Stand tall for one reason and one reason only. They are wrong. And this is all temporary. The corrupt God-rejecting millionaires of this life who steal from people of integrity, though they seem very smart, if they got their gain through a means that God does not approve of, they are the biggest fools. Now, again, notice what I said. If they got their gain by means of that God didn't approve of, there's nothing wrong with being a millionaire. So just that as a sub-point. <laughs> they look smart. They look successful. And you may look like the fool. You may look dumb because of your lack of success or your lack of prosperity. But these are just appearances. They don't matter uh, Thomas Fuller, he says, a wise man may look ridiculous in the company of fools. Friends, do not measure your truth by your success in this life. Truth sometimes doesn't pay dividends in this life. If you hold a faith and, a, 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 and have faith in eternity, do not expect it to necessarily bring you physical blessings and physical ease in this lifetime. You may lose. You might be devoured. You might remain poor. And have your plans constantly put to shame. But who does the scripture call the fool? Not the one who acknowledges God. Right? The one who acknowledges God is the righteous man. You, on the other hand, when you're putting to shame, have, have someone... You, you know, here's... Let's, let's move on. There's somewhere... That the fool refuses to go, and you have access to it. What makes you wiser, what makes your situation better than that of the fool, is that you have access to God. God is with the righteous. right? God makes himself a refuge for those who are righteous. Look at what is said throughout verses 4 and 6. It says, do all the workers of injustice not know God is with the righteous generation? You would put to shame the plan of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. You see, there is a hope here for the saint. Yes, we are persecuted by the fool, but yes, we also have a great refuge. We have a great presence among us that they don't have. We have something awesome, something infinitely better. When you lose everything because you are persecuted against by the wicked, when life literally falls apart, there is one thing that will remain for you, friend. It is the Lord. It is his refuge and his presence. And one who hides himself in the Lord, one who, who makes their home in Fort God, is no fool. They are wise. He is all we need, you see. In God's presence, if it means... I have God's presence and I get to have a refuge in him, but I remain financially poor, then so be it. Take my money. If it means I can no longer sin, then the folly of sin, I resign. I will run to the Lord. I will run to my refuge amidst persecution from the fool. And they are a fool because they forfeit this protection. They forfeit this presence to play in temporary mud pies, as C.S. Lewis might put it. This part of the passage, by the way, correlates nicely with Psalm 73. I was reading uh, earlier, Psalm of Asaph, completely different writer, but it, it correlates nicely. So for homework, you might want to read some of that uh, because I, I found it to be helpful in understanding this concept. 
Uh, But brothers and sisters, when life seems unfair, keep the faith. Yes, the fools appear to win. That's just an appearance. We have a God. We have a refuge. And because of this, look at what one day will happen to the fool who does not have this refuge. Who has made an enemy of God by ignoring them. This is their fate. The fool will be in dread. They will be in dread. They will have great fear. Verse 5. They were in great fear where no, uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, they, they are in great dread for God is with the righteous generation. God is with the righteous person. And this for, for, for a saint is our greatest comfort, right? But you see the presence of God for the sinner is perhaps their greatest fear. Dread is where they will be. They will be in in complete awe. This word dread in Hebrew is associated with with great fear. Job 4.14, it's used and it's translated as shake. You're shaking in fear. You can't even move. You can't run away. There's nowhere to go. You are there in, in, in dread before the Lord not even capable of running away. You can no longer put your, ear, your, your fingers in your ears. You can't turn away any longer. And now you are standing face to face before the Lord of all things. This is what, will be, what the fool will experience. This is the fate of the fool. And Psalm 53 is very interesting. Psalm 53 is almost identical to Psalm chapter 14. It may be set to a different tune, Um, But content-wise, it's almost identical. Uh, And one of these changes, though, that were made is on the section on dread and fear. In Psalm 14, it says, God is with the righteous generation. And according to Psalm 14, um, that that to Psalm 14 is the source of the dread here, that God is with the righteous generation. But Psalm 53 sheds a little more light on what God does And what will result for the fool? Look at what happens when the fool, again, attempts to attack Fort God, right? Here is what happens, Psalm 53's description. It says, they were in great fear there where no fear had been, right? So here they are, they're pursuing, they're persecuting us again. Oh, there's nothing to worry about. And then all of a sudden, God, God, God shows up and God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. He completely obliterated them in Psalm 53's description. Scattered the bones as they tried to attack the refuge that is God. God scattered their bones. No one can can take the saint. Again, that, that aspect of an eternal victory. No one can touch the saint truly if that saint is found in God. He destroys the unrepentant fool who persecutes his people. There will be judgment for these actions. They are not winning. They are going to be in much dread and much fear. And rightly so, given the description of our bone-scattering God. Who wouldn't be afraid at that? Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, denying the existence of fire does not prevent its burning of the man. So doubting the existence of God will not stop the judge of all the earth from destroying the rebel who breaks his law. 1 Corinthians says this, that the fool will not inherit the kingdom. Do do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. What I found interesting is immediately what it says after, do not be deceived, right? It can appear that, oh, they're so successful, they're doing so well, they must have God's hand on them, I don't know, they're, they're, God must be blessing them for something. They are not going to inherit the true eternal kingdom of God. And what a tragis, tragedy this is, right? This, this do not be deceived, it implies that one of the primary lies that we believe is that our foolish, wicked actions, which we perform, rooted in a false belief about God, have no results. Of course they have results. Friends, they have results. Revelation chapter 21.8. And I add this in here, uh, particularly because that word, uh, abominable, also translates detestable which is used in our psalm as well. Also, look at cowardly there. Isn't that kind of a feature of the dread that we see in our psalm? And unbelieving, also found in our psalm. And here's what it says about such a person. It says that the cowardly, the unbelieving, and the abominable or detestable, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is where the fool will end up. There is a Lord, whether or not he is acknowledged, that will one day be acknowledged. And he will judge you and I for our actions that we have done. Would you repent this morning? Would you change your mind about God and therefore also change your actions? You see, the fool will be in dread, rightly so, in the face of God Almighty, whom they rejected, whom they did not seek, and this is trouble for the fool. And friends, here is a great point that I have been withholding uh, that now must surface as well. It is that we are all fools. We are all fools. What does it say in our psalm? There is no one who does good. God has looked down from the heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's a, that's a lot of repetition there to get across the point that no one seeks God. No one is good. We are all fools. We are all fools. And Paul, the apostle in Romans 3, quotes Psalm 14 to this end, showing that we are all universally fallen. We all need a savior. That we are all the fool who in our hearts have been the functional atheist trying to deny God's existence, trying to with, withhold what is due him. Saying there is no God in our hearts. Maybe again, even affirming his existence in our, in our mouth, but functionally being that atheists. We've all done that. Look, I myself am the fool who did not seek God, but thank God he sought me. He is a God of great mercy, a God of, of great love. He saved me. The, I think I'm a pretty big fool. He saved me. He can save you too. He is a God of grace. There's no need for your bones to be scattered. You in Christ can be amongst the righteous. You can make your refuge in him. Will you accept him as Lord and as Savior? You will be blessed beyond your wildest imagination if you do this. Because look at how God treats his people. 
Look at what God does for his people. He restores them. He makes them new. He gives, he gives them all that they lost. Verse 7, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, where the Lord restores, uh, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Now, this was probably referring to a physical salvation of Israel, a physical victory over some fools who were oppressing and persecuting Israel. However, it remains, friends, that God's character of salvation, God's character of restoration is consistent. He doesn't change. We serve a God who indeed still saves. He still is in the business of restoration for those that are his people. He still desires rejoicing and gladness amongst those who are his and who make their refuge within him. See, the fool will be judged, but the righteous, they'll be saved and restored. You will rejoice. You will be glad when the salvation of the Lord comes and he restores all that you have lost, everything you've lost in this lifetime. Oh, and that this restoration, it's better. We're, we're not even just getting getting things we lost. Oh, I sacrificed money and success and all of this that we talked about. But we're getting God himself, the greatest fortune of all, of all time. God himself, even greater than our own Joyce fortune here. The greatest fortune is God. And this is what is promised to the Savior, uh, excuse me, to, the, to his people. What an amazing God we serve, that he can restore all that is lost plus some, and that we will one day rejoice in the Lord. When he becomes your God, he saves and he restores. Would you join the fold? Would you acknowledge the Lord in your heart? Would you declare Jesus as Savior of your life, who was judged in your place, in the place of a fool, that he may save and restore all that had been, been lost? Again, yes, when he becomes your Savior, um, when you become one of his people, there is a sacrifice. You will give up, in a sense, the idea of living as your own. You can't pretend God isn't real anymore. You, you, you give up pretending that your detestable acts are good. And anyone who acknowledges in a significant way that Jesus is Lord must acknowledge that his teaching is objectively true and trumps yours, right? This does happen when you are a part of his people. And this acknowledgement, it does have consequences. You will be persecuted. You may be poor. You might, through the lens of this world, appear to be the fool. But God, you, you trust and believe in eternity that God will restore everything to you that you have given up. Plus, he will save you. He will vindicate you. You will be restored. Again, look at the end here. Israel, God's people, in the end, were they saying, did they have regrets? Not at all. They, they were happy. And look at the, the tense this is all in. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out. They haven't even experienced this yet, but they know when it comes, they are going to be glad. They are going to be filled with joy. And friend, you and I also will be filled with joy when the Lord saves us and vindicates us and shows us, shows the world that we were not fools for our faith. Would you believe this truth this morning and live knowing that indeed there is a God up in the heaven? Here is what we've seen. We've seen that the fool 
is uninterested in God and his law. The fool persecutes God's people. The fool will one day be in dread, but for the righteous, God will save them and restore them. We serve a wonderful God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, that you are kind and compassionate to fools like us. Lord, we, we just pray, um, Lord, that we would live in accordance with this truth, that we would not act as fools, but we would act righteously knowing and believing the truth that, that you are God. Lord, help us, um, help us just be more like you. And Lord, we pray again for those who have not experienced you, that, that they would begin seeking you out. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name.